Good morning. Rest kids, you guys are dismissed. Ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward for the morning offering. Uh, the fans are placed strategically, so there's some back fan there, some there. The most comfortable seats are the ones no one's in. Uh, so if you're hot, man, like scoot up. It's no, no, no shame. So there's some seats there and then the crosswinds here. So um, if you're hot, please get up, come sit down in front of the fans. That's why we got them uh, to try to get through this together. Um, and there's some waters in the back as well. This week, see, I, I love cold weather. Like um, God's called us here to Charleston. And so we're here. But if I could pick, we'd be up in Boston or somewhere like that. And, uh, but Holly wouldn't like that very much uh, either. Um, quickly, we had Vacation Bible School uh, over the last week here at the theater, and we had sort of our church's kids, and uh, we don't have a whole lot of um, sort of elementary-aged kids yet. We have a lot not yet there, and, and many who have obviously grown out of that. Uh, but we had all of our, most, many of our church kids that were there this week, and the part that really excited me was we had over 20 volunteers. So we had all kinds of folks pouring into our kids for, for that week, and it was really encouraging to me to see that. So thank you for coming out. Thank you for um, loving our, our, our kids well. Thank you for sharing the gospel with them. Thank you for helping them grow in the faith. It really, really means a lot. So if you are, are new here, how we generally sort of do things is I preach through books of the Bible during sort of spring and fall semesters. So um, from January up to sort of the, the beginning of summer, we preach through uh, books of the Bible. And then in the fall semester, we preach through uh, books of the Bible. And then in the summer, I take a step back. We have some guest preachers come. And I, I ask the Lord, God, what do you have for us in this season? What are we um, as a people, as a composite of individuals and as a body, what are we struggling with? What do we need to address? And I've been working on this idea for this series, Engage, for, for several months. Uh, what we're going to do over the next several weeks is think biblically and theologically, think biblically, using the Bible as our guide, think theologically, meaning how does the knowledge of God come to bear on this? We're going to think biblically and theologically about how we interact with other people and the world around us. From where those interactions take place, whether it's face-to-face -face or in digital space, meaning on social media, and to the presuppositions we bring to those interactions. Why do we interact? How do we interact? What should we say? When should we say it? When should we be quiet? When should we join in? I think thinking biblically and theologically about these things will increase our love for each other and will increase our evangelistic effectiveness. As I alluded to a moment ago, I want over these weeks to think about God's wisdom for social media. I'm not going to give you my ideas. I'm not going to say, this is what drives me crazy, this is what I like. It's not going to be a rant about how the world is polarized more than ever, if that is even the case. I just want us to learn how to think Christianly about the issues of our day. I want to consider how we should relate to one another inside of the church and outside of the church. I want to consider how we should talk to people inside and outside our family of faith. But before we do all of that in the weeks to come, I want to consider something even more foundational. This morning, I hope to establish the truth that Christianity impacts and informs every part of our 
lives. If we claim Christ's name, we strive to live Christ's way. I want to get specific and and help us understand what growing in God might tangibly look like over the next several weeks, specifically in the ways we engage and interact with other people. I think we need this for a couple of reasons. One, the Bible talks a whole lot about the significance of what we say reading the book of James and many other places, what we say really, really matters. And I think we need to think specifically about how the Bible impacts us and informs the way we think about everyday life because of two dangers that face all of us this morning. If you're taking notes, I would make note of these dangers. The first danger is that we could begin to think Christianity is ethereal. Christianity is ethereal, meaning It's just a series of things I believe, a series of fact statements that I say yes or I say no to. Yeah, I guess there's a God and the Christian understanding of that God makes relative sense to me, so I guess I'm not super against it. And in that case, Christianity would be ethereal. That's the first danger. The second danger, I think, is probably more real for you if you've grown up or spent much time in church, and that's that Christianity is for everyone else. Christianity is for everyone else. And this is probably the most persistent danger that I've noticed in the last several years as a church planting pastor. Christianity can become the system by which I expect other people to live by while I don't do that myself. You should come to church, even if I may or may not. You should listen to the sermon, even though I'm actually sitting here evaluating who I think is listening to the sermon and who's not listening to the sermon. You should share the gospel, even though I will not share the gospel. You should go to these events. You should go to these things, even though I don't really want to. You should have a good attitude with people that disagree with you, even though I do not have a good attitude with people who disagree with me. You should have believe a certain way. You should not struggle with these pet sins, even though I do. And I will do what I want, because only God can judge me. This danger is real for all of us. Christianity can become ethereal. A thing we say, yeah, yeah, I get that, I get that. Or Christianity can become assumed. Yeah, I already do all that, I'm fine. I don't need to actually think about God's wisdom for every aspect of my life. Church, when we come to faith in Jesus, we are called to live all of life God's way. So this morning, I want to lay a gospel foundation for the rest of our series called Engage. I want to consider the what, the how, and the why of living God's way as a member of God's family. I hope you leave reminded that the good news of Jesus informs every aspect of our existence. Jesus is the cornerstone on which our lives are built. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We're going to answer three questions today, and that will be the sermon. I want to be brief. Uh, get you out into uh, AC for a little bit. I'm actually, though, doing chapel for the West Virginia Power today. So I get to go down there and teach as soon as church is over and before their game gets started. I don't think they want to do chapel during the first inning. So um, 
Three questions we'll answer. First, what does God call us to do? Second, how does God call us to do it? And third, why do we live that way? First, what does God call us to do? Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, Paul has been expositing the gospel. He's been teaching the gospel and all of its implications. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions of the flesh and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead, has made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places that he may show us his grace and kindness this forever and ever. I paraphrased at the end. These are the beautiful gospel truths that we were dead in our sin and Jesus has made us alive together with him. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are one in Christ. All these fleshly worldly divisions are torn down in Christ. In Paul's day, this meant that Hebrews and Gentiles, people from a Jewish background, people from a a Greek-speaking, non-Jewish background, they are actually one family, but even more intensely, they are one body. Paul is teaching about how there's been reconciliation affected by this gospel message vertically and how that matters horizontally. He's prayed a beautiful prayer at the end of chapter 3, asking for spiritual strength for God's people. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. He wants them to be strengthened so that they may have the power to comprehend the height and width and depth and breadth of God's love for them. So building on this incredible foundation, Paul begins in chapter 4, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. I think there's some double meaning happening here. Most immediately and definitely, Paul is in prison at the time of the writing, so his credibility cannot be questioned. He is a prisoner for the Lord. He is an ambassador in chains, as he would say elsewhere. Just in case you might be tempted to think Paul doesn't take this seriously, he reminds you he's in prison for this truth. And he's also sort of a bondservant of Christ, right? He will follow Christ because Christ is his Lord. It's a sense in which he is imprisoned to that beautiful fate. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, based on everything I've said, that's what that therefore implies, Therefore, based on all of this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Live in a manner worthy of the calling that I've helped you understand, Paul would say, in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Notice what he doesn't say. Here's all the beautiful gospel truth. Do you guys believe all that? Yeah, we believe it. Okay, cool, we're good, I'm moving on. He says, do you believe all that? Then live into it, live up to it, live like you believe it, live like it is true. There can't be a disconnect between your believing all these things I've said to you and your ability to follow them, to obey them, to live in light of this reality. 
Church, we begin to understand ourselves in our role in the world when we understand God and his plan for the world. As Christians, we're living in response to the reality of God. That sounds broad, but it's foundational. We're living in response to the reality of God. Let me make clear before we go any further, living a certain way does not save us. Living a certain way, though, reveals the change that grace has wrought in us. Living a certain way does not save us, but living a certain way, particularly God's way, reveals the change that has come because of our salvation. Christianity is unique amongst the world's religions because it calls us to live a certain way in light of a certain truth that Jesus, the only Son of God, has come into the world to reverse the curse of sin. If Christianity just called us to live a certain way, it would be no different than any other religion. Every religion has its ideas about how you should live, right? Buddhists encourage its adherents to, to embrace the path of suffering, right? Other religions might emphasize sort of uh, unconditional love. Other religions might emphasize fighting for justice. Other religions might emphasize uh, sort of ritual cleanliness. There are different emphases, and a religion telling us to live a certain way is, is nothing new. But Christianity calls us to live a certain way in light of a certain truth, that Jesus, the Son of God, has come into the world to seek and save sinners. I hear so many people sharing their stories particularly in this area of how they've come to faith and how they've come to know Jesus and how they've come to follow Jesus. And there's always, or not always, there's often this sort of, I believed these things as a kid, or I never really questioned all of these things, or, you know, I, I guess I was okay with this theologically, but it became real for me when fill in the blank. It became real for me when I met this campus minister at my school. It became real for me when this person started sitting down and having coffee with me and talking about my life. It became real for me when I, I did this thing I thought I would never do and you know, I had to come to grips with this reality. It became real for me when my grandmother died and you know, I saw her, her, her testimony and I was broken and began to, you know, it became real for me when fill in the blank. And what I, I have detected over these last several years of, of pastoral ministry, what I think they're often trying to express is it clicked when two things happened. It clicked when I had a greater understanding of Christianity as the story of God from creation to consummation. And I realized my life fits into that story. It clicked for me when I stopped seeing Christianity as just sort of a religion for people who choose it, but I began seeing Christianity as the real story of the whole world. The true story of God's activity in the world from his creation at the beginning to what he will do at consummation when it's all over. I begin to stop thinking of Christianity simply as a self-salvation project and I began to see Christianity as what God is doing across time and space, creating all things and then redeeming and restoring all things that sin has broken. I got a bigger picture of what Christianity is. 
And then I realized when I understood that it's not all about me, then I began to understand the world and my place in it. I then quit asking what God has called me to do, specifically and individually and selfishly, and I began to see what God has called all of us to, and I put my time and effort and energy into being obedient to that. I stopped sitting around and saying, well, I'll get serious about my faith when God, you know, opens up the sky or when he walks across the Kanawha River or when whatever happens and he tells me, you're going to do this. And I started to see, oh, God created all things. He's restoring all things. He will return and judge all people. He loves all people. He's given us his word. He's made us ambassadors of his kingdom. He's called us to go and make disciples. He's called the church to be on this mission. I'm called to be a part of the church. I'm called to make disciples. Then I'm going to put everything behind it and just go for it. And I'll figure out the specifics as they come about. When I realized that Christianity is the true story of the whole world, and I realized that my life fits into that story, instead of trying to take that great story and make it all about me, it begins to click. What does God call us to do? To live in a way worthy of your calling. Live in a way worthy of the gospel. Live in a way worthy of the story. Live in a way worthy of the news. The news that Jesus Christ has died on behalf of sinners and he's risen again and he will return. Live in such a way that's worthy of my calling to that gospel and to that news. Now, as I'm thinking about living specifically, how should my life be marked? Look in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does that look like, right? What does it look like to live all of life God's way? And in this situation and throughout much of his writings, Paul immediately goes to interpersonal relationships, to interpersonal activity. Because the things we believe internally prove themselves to be true or not true externally. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel, living all of life God's way, living into God's story, requires that we do it a certain way. He calls us to live with all humility, with all gentleness, and with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Humility. Perhaps there's no virtue we want and don't want simultaneously like this. In Paul's day, humility was seen as weakness, and in many ways that is still the case. I think many of our problems, not all of our problems, but many of our problems, spiritually, uh, relationally, uh, on social networks, in real life, they flow from our lack of humility. They flow from our pride. Paul teaches the church, though, that pride's not the virtue the world would have you think it is. That there is a better way to live than thinking of yourself all of the time. 
But Paul understood what I hope we understand this morning. You ain't got to look out for yourself. What do you realize who is looking out for you? When we get that, our lives can be marked by a self-forgetfulness. The freedom to not enter every conversation and every situation thinking, how does this impact me? This frees us to have a constant desire for good things to happen to other people. A constant posture of listening more than talking because we genuinely believe that the person we're listening to matters to God just as much as we do. And we don't presume that we have more to say or that our opinions, even if we are more educated in a particular topic, we don't presume to lord over them with that. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote about humility and how we often think of humility um, as thinking less of yourself. And that's not entirely the case. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less. God calls us to be a people who are humble, who are seeking the good of others, who aren't always looking out for number one. Live with humility, live gently, live with gentleness. The trajectory of our life should be one of gentleness. We don't answer insult for insult. We don't instigate fights. We don't bring other people down. When is the last time the church was described as gentle? Maybe we should ask why that is. Gentleness in the world might not be seen as a virtue, but in God's kingdom, it certainly is. Live with humility, live with gentleness, and live with patience. I think this one's hard for us in a world where everything happens immediately, but I don't think it is necessarily harder than it was when the text was written. We've always had a bent towards impatience because of our sin. People say, oh, I'm just not a very patient person. Nobody is a very patient person. I think this is somewhat of a non sequitur, but I think it's so true. I've read and I I affirm one of the greatest evidences of our sin is our ability to justify absolutely everything we do. Is our ability to justify everything about us. I could be controlling, but I have an excuse for that. I say I'm I'm just type A. I just have to have everything a certain way, so I'm going to use that personality trait as an excuse to lord over you. Or I might just be lazy, and I'm going to say I'm patient, but really I'm lazy, right? We can justify whatever our bent is, and my task for us is to allow the Spirit of God to illumine the reality of our hearts and teach us how to live with humility. Teach us how to live gently. Teach us how to live with patience, because none of us bend towards humility. You might bend towards sort of pride that puffs your chest and wants everyone to look at you all the time, but you might bend towards the kind of pride that goes to the corner of the room and hopes that no one looks at you and no one pays attention to you. And I would argue that the person who wants everyone to look at them and the person who wants no one to look at them are both struggling with pride because they're both thinking about themselves. No one bends towards humility. No one bends toward gentleness. You might bend toward running from conflict and call that gentleness, but that's not real biblical 
gentleness. No one bends toward patience, waiting and waiting for things to happen in our lives. And certainly no one bends toward the next text, bearing with one another. This is such interpersonal stuff here, like living humbly, gently, and patiently, bearing with one another. That means forgiving each other. That means choosing to extend grace, bearing with one another in love, not just tolerating each other, but choosing to love the other person, not ignoring the sin in their life, but through the sin in their life, being patient with them, knowing about the sin in your own life, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We shouldn't be eager to put our opinions out there. We shouldn't be eager to have our way in everything. We shouldn't be eager to bring about the desired ends of every situation that we have. We are eager to be unified. We are eager to choose to love. We are eager to bear with one another. This is so countercultural in our culture and in our church culture. We're not eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We're eager to maintain the illusion of control and power that we have over other people. It's easier, I've learned as I always share it, because I, I coach basketball, and, and people will leave a church for less than they'll leave a basketball team for. Like, we just hop around. We're not eager to maintain the unity of love, bearing with one another, being patient, knowing that change doesn't happen on my timeline. If I've learned anything I've learned, that I don't control outcomes, I don't control how things go. I'll control inputs, and I'll be patient with the outcomes and results, leaving those to God. So whether you're on social media, as we'll talk about in several weeks, because I think many of us are scrolling our lives away before we even know what happens to us. And I don't believe this is any longer just a young person problem. So whether you're on social media, whether you're at a family reunion, whether you're conversing with a church member, whether you're in a discipleship group, whether you're chatting with a friend, wherever you are and whatever you're talking about, am I living in a way that's worthy of the gospel? With humility, gentleness, patience, and a focus on other people. Where can we demonstrate these realities? Where else can we demonstrate these realities except for in our dealings with other people in the world around us? How can we live humbly in a world that teaches us to curate an image for ourselves and then blast that image to the world? How can we live gently in a world that seemingly is all about power? How can we live patiently in a world where things happen instantly? How can we bear with one another when it would be much easier just to burn bridges? How can we maintain peaceful unity when there is so much to fight about? We'll get specific over the next several weeks on many of these things, but let me give a preliminary answer. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Focus on him because we become like what we behold. We become like the things we fix our hearts and minds on. And if you fix your heart and if you fix your mind and if you fix your eyes on Jesus, you will become more like him. 
worship team, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up as we enter our final portion of the sermon. So why do we live that way? Had to get a drink there or I might have passed out. So I don't think anyone laughed, but if you did, I didn't hear it. I know my mom probably did. Why do we live that way? Why do we live all of life God's way? Why do we seek to live counterculturally when it would be so much easier to live like everyone else? Paul goes into a sort of statement of faith in verse 4, sort of an early Christian creed or early Christian creedal formulation by which they are thinking about theology, thinking about doctrine, thinking about how they can articulate who God is. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all is sort of an early Trinitarian formula by which we're thinking about God as one nature in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is God, and there is no other. There is one faith. There is one faith that saves. There is one faith that is true, faith in Jesus, the risen Lord. There is no other way to the one God but that one faith. There is one baptism. There is one entry point into the church of Jesus Christ. And there is one body, there is one church. And that church encompasses, includes, would be a better word, all of us. Here in Charleston, West Virginia, in Prague where our team will be going in a couple of months, in India where our other team will be going in several months. There is one body. Saints who have gone before, saints who are living now, saints who will live at some point in the future, we are all part of one body. There is one God and Father of all. There is one faith in that God. There is one baptism. There's one entry point into one body, and that is the church. We live all of our life in response to this truth. The Christian life is a Godward life. The Christian life is not just people who love good doctrine. The Christian life is not just people who are nice to other people. The Christian life is not just people who don't stir up controversy, ideally. The Christian life is not just people who take some of the lessons that we'll learn over the next couple of weeks and put them into our life and say, hey, everything's good because I'm not being a jerk here. Everything's good because I'm working on these relationships. The Christian life is something more than that. The Christian life is a Godward life. God has given us life. God is our life. And God is the final destination of our life. He is where we are going. He is all we need. He is all we could ever want. When we begin to think about the specifics of how we live the Christian life, when I wake up on Monday morning, when I wake up on Wednesday morning, 
when I go to bed on Friday night and I begin to think about how should I live Christianly in all of life? Because that's the big idea this morning, is that if we come to God, we come to Him with all of us, all of our lives, everything on the table. And when I begin to think about the specifics of the Christian life and how being a Christian impacts the way I deal with my roommates, I deal with my husband or my wife, my kids, my neighbor, people that I really, really, really naturally do not like, people that I'm naturally drawn to. How does the Christian message, the story of God making all things new through Christ Jesus, how does that impact that situation? Not vaguely, not ethereally, not it should impact it for other people, but how does it impact it for me? When I start thinking about that, I start with God who lives, who is real, and of whose kingdom I am an ambassador. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us to live Christianly in the everyday stuff of life. Father, I confess that there can be a disconnect in what I say I believe and how I live. There can be a self-justification on my end to just say, hey, this is how I am. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. Father, teach me, teach us as a church how to live all of life your way. If nothing else this morning, help us see that we're supposed to live all of life your way. If nothing else, show us that you desire more for us than empty moralism and empty believism. You require an embodied faith, a faith that's real, a faith that lives, a faith that works, a faith that doesn't make excuses for our ourselves, a faith that doesn't justify ourselves, but a faith that clings to Jesus instead of ourselves. Father, where we are not humble, make us humble. Father, where we are not gentle, make us gentle. Father, where we are not patient, make us patient. Father, where we do not seek unity in the bond of peace, help us seek unity in the bond of peace. Father, where we're not eager to maintain unity in the church, make us eager to maintain unity in the church. Lord, if we pray that, we believe that you will answer. And we may or may not like the ways in which you do. Give us faith to trust you. Give us faith to love you. And give us faith to press on. In Jesus' name we pray.